We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad on the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of Dress to Kill on July 25th, 1980. It was written and directed by Brian De Palma and released by Filmways Pictures. Whenever I think of this movie, I'm reminded of the story that John Landis shared with us at the New Beverly, where this was right at the end of hitchcock's life he was complaining that all the trailers for this movie said hitchcockian across them he had his own like screening room on the universal lot and john landis would just hang out with him and watch movies every week so john landis and him were having lunch and he was like why do they keep calling this movie hitchcockian i had nothing to do with it and he's like no no no, it's it's an homage you should be flattered like they're trying and he said and this is before i met brian de palma or i wouldn't have been defending him but <laughs> and then he's, he went on to say uh hitchcock looked at me with, and without any like hesitation he just said you mean fromage <laughs> and that was the end of the conversation <laughs> about it but uh, i think he passed away before this movie was officially released i don't this know if he movie, got a chance to see it this movie does kind of remind me of frenzy yeah it has a lot of different uh hitchcock stuff in it hitchcockian mm-hmm. is a totally acceptable phrase for yeah. a for sure for, this for movie. sure it has a style of hitchcock yeah. i get it like especially with the memory thought bubbles yeah <laughs> <laughs> when, that, when that happened oh we'll get to it because i was so excited <laughs> yeah and there there's so much of like even just the general structure of it that calls to mind psycho specifically in the late 1970s brian de palma wrote a screenplay based on gerald walker's article cruising Obviously, he was unable to secure the rights to that article as William Friedkin adapted it into a film earlier this year. Instead, De Palma reworked the screenplay into a new story, including elements from his own life experiences. For example, having been asked by his mother to set up cameras to catch his father cheating and a lot of other Hitchcock homages. Well, that actually kind of makes sense in terms of home movies. Yes. Because that's exactly mm-hmm. what that movie was about. <laughs> but the result of all that together was Dressed to Kill, originally titled Straight Razor, which I think I actually might prefer. Yeah, um, I yeah. think Dressed to Kill is too much of a spoiler. Yeah. Yeah. This was not Brian De Palma's first directing credit for 1980. If you'll recall the experimental student film, Home Movies, which evidently screened somewhere, <laughs> uh, which also starred Nancy Allen, uh, De Palma's wife at the time, and Keith Gordon both in very similar roles as a promiscuous young woman and a nerdy virgin kid setting up cameras to catch people in the act. De Palma wrote the role of Liz Blake specifically for Nancy Allen, but an original producer tried to pitch Suzanne Somers for the role. Oh, God, no. Yeah, I don't think that would have worked. No, I think Nancy Allen did a great job. She's fine. I think she does an okay job. Yeah, she's fine. <laughs> I, I, I think that there's a larger problem Yeah, that isn't her fault. Yes. Uh, evidently, De Palma had wanted Liv Ullman for the Angie Dickinson role as Kate Miller, but she was uncomfortable with the film's graphic violence. Many critics wondered why Dickinson's performance was overlooked at the Oscars, but Nancy Allen, on the other hand, was nominated for a Golden Raspberry for her performance. <laughs> uh, I don't think it's But also deserved. a Golden Globe. Well, a Golden Globe for Best Newcomer, yeah. Yeah. It's weird that she would get both of those for the same performance. Yeah. 
Although I have to say this is the first time where I'm not going to tell the Razzies that they got it totally wrong. It's a nomination. It's not a win. I guess. And there's parts of it that really don't fit the movie, the performance that she's doing. But I think she was fine. You'll I, have to point those out. Okay. I will. Uh, <laughs> the role of Dr. Robert Elliott was initially offered to Sean Connery, who was keen to play the part but contractually obligated elsewhere. The two would later work together on The Untouchables. De Palma had to argue a lot with the MPAA to bring the rating down from an X to an R, and eventually he did so by removing shots from the shower and elevator scenes and taking out a bit of the dialogue between Liz Blake and Dr. Elliot in the climactic confrontation scene. I have a hard time imagining Sean Connery in this role. I don't. I, f- I feel like I want to see Connery in drag desperately. Mm-hmm. I would totally go for that. I'm just saying that I have a hard... He seems so overtly masculine in so many of his movies i have a hard time seeing him being okay with this role maybe but maybe that was the challenge if yeah if, if he's any kind of a real actor he would want to embrace a challenge I, and, I, and i know that michael kane is that kind of actor yes I, I do think it's interesting though that it wasn't like he passed on it or that they said no to him it was just a situation where the schedule didn't work out sure um we start the film with a credit for samuel z arkoff presents this is a producer who was listed on IMDb as uncredited, but here he is with a credit at the start of the film. Uh, I recognize the name from our very recent review of The Earthling, uh, which he also produced. And he also produced earlier this year How to Beat the High Cost of Living. The first shot of the film is slowly pushing through a door frame out of a bedroom into the attached bath where a man is shaving in the foreground while behind him Angie Dickinson as Kate Miller is showering. The original draft of this scene, there was no woman in the bathroom, and the man was seen shaving in the shower and eventually cutting off his own penis. What? That was the intro to the film. Uh, I don't... Well, this scene has just as much to do with the rest of the movie as that scene would. Yes. I guess. I think that scene has more to do with the rest well, of the movie. Well, it depends that's, on... Uh, that's true. If that's that true. scene was meant to be a, like, fantasy scene for, I think both like, of the scenes. Scene. I think they were both intended to lead to her waking up. Which is interesting. Well, why would it be her dream? Because that seems more like it would be uh, our psychiatrist's dream. I agree, but I don't think it was. Um, I don't. I don't get the purpose of this opening sequence at all, or how it plays well, in. I think he just I, wanted I to book in the movie that way. Well, I saw it as just introducing her as sexually frustrated. Yeah, we push in closer on Kate watching the man shave as she massages her nipples and begins masturbating in the shower. Uh, her body in the scene is actually being played by 1977 penthouse pet of the year, Victoria Lynn Johnson, who gave Dickinson full permission to claim the body was hers, which she was not interested in doing. <laughs> Victoria even bleached her pubic hair to match Dickinson's hair color. Suddenly, Kate is grabbed from behind by another man hiding in the steam of the shower stall, and she cries for help from the shaving man, across the foggy glass but he's not reacting much to what's going on here and the man in the shower has his way with her kate wakes up from this dream mid-sex with her husband just before he finishes and leaves for work most of the descriptions of this scene that i found called this a rape fantasy that she's having although it seems more like she's just terrified in the dream to me but but that's part of the fantasy i guess kate goes to check on her son peter whose room is crowded with circuitry and blinking lights She reminds him that they were going to go to the museum today and to have lunch with Grandma, but he has to finish this computer in time for the City Science Championships, which we will not hear about again for the rest of the film. 
She's very proud of what he's built here and lets him out of the agreement, but makes him promise that he's not going to stay up all night working on it. She also tells him that he has to name this thing and makes up a story about Napoleon inventing the Napoleon pastry. <laughs> you know, the French pastry. It was named after Napoleon. Napoleon invented pastry? I thought he was a general. Well, you can't fight battles all the time. He baked as a kind of relaxation. She leaves but reminds him to please not stay up all night. She asks what this thing is anyway, and he calls it a Peter. Grandmom's going to be very disappointed, but it's all right. I'll explain if you're working on your Peter. A cab pulls up outside Dr. Elliot's psychiatric office, and Kate Miller rings the bell. Dr. Elliot mentions that he's having to be his own receptionist since Mary is on vacation, which in retrospect is hopefully true. <laughs> he tells Kate to have a seat. And she begins the session with complaints about her mother and how she'll ruin her birthday. They circle around for a while until they land on her marriage and her complaints about her husband, Mike, and what he did this morning. It's, it's kind of my hope that, that his secretary is on vacation. Not, not so much on vacation, but she's actually working for Bobby. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> she has to pull double duty here. That would be funny. But it'd be okay as long as she's getting two paychecks. That's right. Yeah. Or what if he, the next day she comes back and she's like, oh, it's Dr. Elliot here? And and it's just him in like a redhead wig. And he's <laughs> like, oh, no, he's out of the office, but I'm just trying to catch up on some paperwork. Like he's Mary also. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Uh, a line of questioning from Kate gets problematic when she moves from do you find me attractive to would you want to sleep with me? And finally, why don't you? Elliot catches eyes with his reflection in a mirror across the room before stating very plainly that he's married and he doesn't want to risk his marriage on this. But is he married? I don't know. We, we don't know. I don't think we ever find out. I don't What if he's like married he to his work? <laughs> huh. I don't know. Kate heads to the museum alone and sits on a bench opposite Alex Katz's West Interior, a large painting of a rather bored-looking woman, the artist's wife, Ada. She takes out a planner and looks around at the other museum patrons, a flirty couple, a man starting a conversation with a woman by herself. Then she turns to a second painting, Tom Pelmore's reclining nude of an enormous gorilla laying across a rug. She turns to a family trying to locate themselves on a museum map when their daughter sneaks away mischievously. In her planner, she scribbles nuts under the already written eggnog on Thanksgiving Day, November 27th, 1980. Apparently this whole scene initially had voiceover from Angie Dickinson, but it was stripped out in favor of almost nine minutes of complete silence. Yeah, I was like, this scene, I, I, I had it timed out at eight minutes, but yeah. Yeah. It just... I said almost nine minutes. All right, that's true. Eight is almost nine. Eight is enough. Regardless, it's a really long scene it without... Is speaking yeah but I, I think it's on purpose it's for the movie well, it definitely is on purpose i just it's an, it's an interesting <laughs> It'd be weird if it was on accident there's no sound <laughs> in this scene he notices at the premiere I, I think it's it's interesting to spend so much setup on a character that doesn't matter that, well not that, not that <laughs> she doesn't matter the plot. yeah but i thought but, you were talking about the guy not her but i guess someone who i would argue is the main character who doesn't get introduced until after act one yeah right the family notices that their daughter has snuck away and leaves to find her when Kate scribbles pick up turkey across the top of what might have looked like the same page of her planner because all the other notes we could see for Thanksgiving, eggnog, dinner at four o'clock, nuts, have been copied over to the Thursday two weeks earlier, November 13th. 
uh, I'm assuming what happened is she just messed up on the Thanksgiving Day page. Mm. And so they copied all the notes over to a different week of the same month and thought I wouldn't notice. (laughs) But but Patrick got way too into the details. Yeah. Uh, So assuming she actually meant to pick up the turkey on Thanksgiving and not two weeks earlier, (laughs) then according to her planner, today is November 25th, 1980. Well, I mean, do you? If they're frozen, it's a frozen. Could turkey. take a couple need, weeks to thaw out no, if it's needs, real frozen. We need at least a couple days to thaw out. Yeah, I mean, if she's picking up a frozen turkey, she could just keep it in her freezer until. For it's, a week. it's possible. I just assumed that pick up turkey and eggnog and nuts meant that it was all for a meal that day. But then we see that two days earlier, on the twenty fifth, we have a note for take the ferry lunch with grandma visit dr elliot so i think all of this is completely irrelevant it's very important to the plot that this is <laughs> november 25th it does not matter what day it is remember at the beginning of the changeling when it tells you the exact day of the year <laughs> you're like hmm note that for no reason <laughs> suddenly a man in sunglasses takes a seat next to her and she pops her planner back into her purse She tries to get the man's attention for a moment before removing a glove and flashing her wedding ring. Which I think that would be what you don't want to do. It seems like a very deliberate gesture, but when the man leaves immediately, she looks at her ring as though she didn't realize the message she was sending. Which, to be fair, is one of two messages. Either, hey, I'm married, back off, or, hey, I'm married, not looking for anything serious. Like, we could go have sex and there's not going to be strings attached. She stands to follow him and drops that glove on the ground. Apparently for these tracking shots, she was literally holding a string connected to the camera so that she would stay the proper distance for the lens to stay in focus. Mm. But as she's pursuing this man, she actually walks past him by mistake, which we see behind her because we're looking at her as she's coming around the corner. When she turns back to retrace her steps, she notices him. And now he follows her. And then right when she gives up, walking away from him she turns to look at him and he ducks through a doorway out of view so she's lost him again this cat and mouse game goes on forever it does i kind of like this shot like though i like the whole sequence i think it needed i think it needed a little something i don't know if it's a little tighter editing um or maybe a little bit more energetic camera movements or something but I, i i think it's interesting and also like are they hinting that she has some kind of like memory problems because she seems to be forgetting an awful lot of stuff (laughs) yeah but then remembering them (laughs) yeah vividly she has a photographic memory but it takes a while to reboot (laughs) they have to develop yeah takes a while yeah the man that snuck away retrieves her glove from the floor and then surprises her with it with a sudden grasp on the shoulder yeah he Uh, puts it on yeah and and grabs her And she turns around, like, all offended that he grabbed her, but looks at the hand that Mm -hmm. grabbed her and just starts to walk directly away from him as he's, like, mutedly gesturing an apology. Yeah. Not saying, like, I have your glove. I was trying to give it back. He just, like, waves his arms around like he's saying something, but he's not. She goes to consult a museum map on her way out before noticing that she is one glove short. And she heads back to the bench where she realizes that he was wearing the glove when he tapped on her shoulder, which is indicated with a literal <laughs> split-screen composite shot of him grabbing her shoulder again and her mm-hmm. looking back over. And she's like, you know, oh, face palms. That was my glove. Yeah. And she's very embarrassed by how she reacted to that. So she tries to find the man again. And she does. 
and this time she's following him faster, but he seems to be running away every time he gets yeah. around the corner. But not without discarding her other glove first before that. Well, not yet. Not yet. Oh, she doesn't? No. no. Uh, she loses him here in the museum, and eventually she goes to leave. Inside the museum, we're in Philadelphia. All the exteriors are the museum in New York, but they couldn't get the rights to shoot inside. But outside the museum, she tosses her second glove on the ground because she's like, well, I don't need this one anymore because... I lost the other one. The gloves are off. Yeah. It's an expensive pair of gloves, though. They're isotoners. And she lost one, and so she throws the other one away. I'm sorry. You Googled what kind of gloves these were? I was on IMDb Trivia. Okay. <laughs> it's the same kind of glove that uh, didn't Maria. fit OJ. But yeah, outside the museum, she tosses her second glove on the ground. And then she notices the guy in the cab with her other glove hanging out the window, like waving to her with it infuriatingly she leaves the second glove on the ground as she moves to apologize to the man but somebody picks it up yeah we get a very quick shot of someone collecting the glove off the ground there's a lot of these weird split shots in this movie yeah and and i don't think it's split diopter I some think of them are so, well, I, but not this one no this one's not this was like like two completely different camera setups yeah but as she gets close to the car sunglasses guy just pulls her completely into the cab for a deep kiss and they're very quickly making out hard, and then suddenly they're having sex in the back, which yeah. I feel like as a taxi driver I would be less cool with than this guy is. Or they, they signed the taxi cab confessions forms before they got in the cab. I, I so. guess, yeah. Sunglasses pulls her down across the seat of the cab and slips her panties off, and the cab continues to a hotel where Kate is like frantically checking the faces of everyone nearby to make sure she's not getting caught with this mystery man. Is that what she's the... doing? That's what I thought. I, I was like, I, I had no, it's like, why is she taking note of the moving van? Yeah. I think she's just like, none of these people know me, right? Like these are, no, no one's going to say they saw me go to this hotel. Uh, the camera tilts up the building from the hotel entrance as we're fading tonight or maybe early morning. It's hard to tell because the next shot is of two clocks. <laughs> Uh, which <laughs> do not read the same time. Uh, one is for some reason a big digital clock with like visible circuitry that resembles the Peter machine, which in military time reads 1847 or 647 p.m. And the second presumably more reliable time is on her gold watch, which says it's about a quarter after seven, unclear a.m. or p.m. I would guess a.m.? I thought it was p.m., like, it seems oh no, dark for 7 p.m. Well, but if it's close to Thanksgiving. I don't know. I just assumed it was p.m. Like, uh-oh. They're well, going to notice that I'm late. Then they're only about a half hour different. But yes. still, they're different times. Well, the husband was still up. Yeah. So it has to be it has to be night. Or day. <laughs> and he's up again. <laughs> well, but, he was like, but he's like up on the couch. Like, like, yeah, like, TV. like where dads are at 7 o'clock in the morning no, sometimes. It was the evening. Okay. On second thought, maybe the point of the weird digital clock was to remind her to get home to Peter. Uh, she dresses very quickly and tries to call home, but when her husband answers, she can't be bothered to speak. I guess she was hoping for Peter to answer, or I don't know. I don't know what the point is. Well, to me, the point of this was he didn't seem to notice or care that she was gone. Yeah. Like, I think she was hoping he would say something like... He would sound worried. Like, Kate, is, is that you? Like, you know, uh, but it's just like, who is this? Like, I'm busy, kind of like almost kind of tone. You might as well just answer to like, who is this? Do you want to have sex? (laughs) Or Ghostbusters, what do you want? That'd be really weird (laughs) if you said that. The movie wasn't even out yet. (laughs) She seems confused about where her panties went. 
before recalling them being taken <laughs> off in the cab with another split screen. I was so excited. When, when, when she taps, starts looking for, around for her panties, I was like, I was in, in my room talking yeah. to, with myself. I was like, please give us another thought bubble. Yep. Please. I called it too when we were watching it. I haven't seen this movie in a while, but I was just like, oh, we're going to see another composite shot where we're going to see the panties at the floor. I was... I thought it was so strange. Like she's feeling around. Yeah. On her on her sides. Like, Am I wearing them? Are they in my right. pockets? Right. Like I thought she was looking for something. Like, oh, where's my keys? Like, what did I do with my? Well, she wouldn't say phone, but what did I do with my watch? I don't know. Yeah. She'd be looking for something, but no, she's rubbing her legs. Like, where are my underwear? I'm like, if you don't have to rub your legs to know you're not wearing underwear. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah. So so far she's lost one glove and another glove and her underwear. And she heads back to the bedroom where she sees some of her jewelry and she pops on. She already put the watch back on, but here she pops on a couple gold bracelets uh, directly toward camera. And then she moves to a desk in the living room to leave a note for Warren Lockman, whose name and membership in the Wall Street Athletic Club she finds in the desk. Looking for a pen, she writes a couple drafts of a thank you note settling on I loved our afternoon and then notices a Department of Health paperwork dated 1117 so this must be the 25th informing mr lockman that he is riddled with venereal diseases (laughs) specifically syphilis and gonorrhea and that he should do his best to contact all 12 women he has slept with in the past two weeks according to this paperwork Uh, it does seem weird to throw an exclamation mark at the end of venereal diseases (laughs) like a surprise venereal disease they might as well have had Ed McMahon on the envelope. You may have already won gonorrhea. Uh, the score is almost comically melodramatic for this reveal, and Kate rushes for the elevators on this floor as if to outrun the STDs. Uh, we see a woman staring through a small window in the door to the stairwell behind her, and the camera pushes past her to check that out. Uh, slowly the door opens, and we see a tall woman in a blonde wig with sunglasses peeking through. Kate pushes the button for the lobby in the elevator before realizing that she left her wedding ring on the nightstand, or the weird clock thing. She hits the button for the seventh floor again, forgetting how elevators work and that it needs to go to the bottom first. A mother and daughter get on the elevator and the girl stares her down like she knows everything. They leave the elevator and it returns to the seventh floor, but as the doors open, Kate is confronted by the tall woman in a blonde wig with a straight razor. The figure slashes the razor across Kate's hand as she raises it to defend herself before the attacker moves into the elevator with her and the doors close. On another floor, Liz Blake discusses stock tips with a man. We cut back to the elevator where the killer is just hacking away at Kate, throwing blood all over the elevator buttons and floor indicators. I don't know how the killer could have expected her to be back at seven. (laughs) Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's weird. Like, what time is she leaving? And also, after she's left and gone to all the way down to the first floor and presumably left the building, no, 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 she's going to come back because, of course, she forgot her wedding ring. Yeah, it is weird. Uh, unless this was a random thing, but I, it doesn't feel random. It, it doesn't feel random, but if the attacker was also waiting to use the elevator, it was just probably really convenient. <laughs> but the attacker only has to go down seven floors. So the attacker presumably if she had not come back up, would have taken the elevator down and pursued her out of the building. Yes. Okay. Maybe. I'll buy it. The attacker makes... best I got. (laughs) (laughs) The attacker makes another incision across her cheekbone and jugular with the razor before Kate finally collapses. 
When the elevator doors open, the stock expert notices the body first and runs for the stairwell, but Liz screams in place when she notices the bloodied victim. She reaches in to help her up, but then notices in one of those bubble mirrors in the elevator that someone is hiding behind the door with a razor, swinging it down toward the fingers that she has in the elevator. But when the killer notices that she can see the killer, this person drops the straight razor, and Liz snatches it out of the elevator before the doors close to prevent the attacker from using it any further on Kate. I guess. Or just because she saw it. And then at this moment, a woman who's easily like... 50 feet away yeah. just starts screaming. Yeah, all she can see is her standing there with a bloody razor and she already knows this is a murderer who just killed a woman. Yeah. She's a maid and she just ducks into one of the rooms and slams the door screaming. Uh, Liz runs downstairs to get the police and as she does she passes the elevator on the bottom floor with the now dead woman's arm preventing the door from closing. Back at Dr. Elliot's office he's listening to voicemails and he skips a few before he gets to one from Bobby, who speaks in a very breathy, sensual voice. This is Bobby. You won't see me anymore, so I'm going to have a little session with your machine. Oh, Doctor, I'm so unhappy. I'm a girl inside this man's body, and you're not helping me to get out. So I got a new shrink. Levy's his name, and he's going to sign the papers so I can get my operation. Oh, I borrowed your razor, and... Well, you'll read all about it. Some blonde bitch saw me, but I'll get her. She is a transgendered former patient seeking psychiatric approval for male-to-female sex change. She also mentions having borrowed the straight razor that Dr. Elliot, for whatever reason, has decided to keep in a cabinet in his office. Mm. I guess he might occasionally need to shave there. I, I Is this only his office? It also seems like an apartment. I don't know. I, I also feel like the razor itself was going to come into play um, since it has been collected now. Yeah. Like, it's like, oh, does it have like a monogram or something on it that can be traced to him? But it doesn't really. It doesn't. And nothing, like, because of how this movie unfolds, it makes sense now. But at the time, I kept saying, did they know it's his razor? This has got to come come together at some point. Yeah. Well, I have a question about Bobby's voice, but maybe we cover it later. Yes, we do. Well, okay. yeah, I, I have the same, because I feel like it's cheating. William Finley is doing the voice of Bobby for these phone calls. Who's William Finley? He's a De Palma regular. He has 14 credits in De Palma movies. Okay. Uh, including The Phantom of the Paradise. He was the Phantom. Oh, yeah. Okay. I He's also that. one of oh, the wait, scientists we had in him Simon. Early- yes. I was yeah. going to say. We had him earlier this year. Yeah. But I don't understand why they would do that. To avoid giving anything away. I get that. Which is but cheating. have your actor make up a new voice. That's true. I don't. That's it it just seems like you are ruining it by not having the well there's there's another complaint that could be made uh to the same effect because the person playing the killer in every scene so far has not been the actual killer but uh, we'll never show the killer long enough for you to be able to really tell though yeah dr elliot checks the drawer to confirm that it's missing while listening to the message still bobby claims to have killed a woman and plans on killing another who witnessed the attack And then the last message on the machine is from Detective Marino from the NYPD informing him of the death of his patient, Kate Miller, and he's backing away from the message in shock 
when he collides with a mirror and is startled by his own reflection. At the police station, Liz Blake is flipping through a stack of photographs trying to identify the killer. Dr. Elliot arrives and is directed to sit next to Peter and wait. Yeah, and also the maid is there to positively identify Liz Liz as a woman she saw with a razor by a closed elevator door. Yeah. <laughs> Who called the police, though, for this attack. Yeah. Dr. Elliot asks if he can help Peter at all, and Peter says, do you know who the killer is? We know from the last scene that he is aware that his former patient, Bobby, is the killer. Yeah. So he's either lying here to protect the patient or he doesn't believe the patient. Elliot offers Peter a business card as he is called into questioning with the detective. I don't think that's fair, though. What? Uh, To say that he's either lying or to protect the patient or he doesn't believe the patient. Because I think that he doesn't necessarily have hard evidence to say that these two things are in fact one of the same and due to doctor patient privilege he shouldn't really reveal the things that have been said unless he knew for sure yeah um i would argue my counter argument would be that they have the murder weapon which is his razor which is missing and a message from someone saying that they took it but they don't know that that is his razor that is missing. But right, he, but, he, if, but he if, if he asked to see it, breaching, he could identify it. He could he could identify it without breaching confidentiality. He could say, yes, that's my razor, and it was in my office, and it was taken. Yes. And then he could say, these are my patients, but I don't think he should say, hey, my patient said explicitly that they did this. Unless I feel he like had that more is one of the things, though, that you're allowed to report, is when, yeah, when they, a patient commits a co- crime. Yeah, admits to a murder specifically then that that's not protected by doctor-patient confidentiality. It's not like attorney-client privilege, I don't think. Um, but I could be wrong on that if any of our listeners want to correct me. I mean, I feel like we, we can't... I, I have things to say that, that are going to get into spoilers, but he might also be subconsciously protecting. For sure. Like so. Well, like, he, his explanation later is the second half of that, okay. which is that he doesn't believe her and he wants to speak with her face-to-face to confirm that the, this confession is true. Yeah, so he's given the business card to Peter, and he moves into the detective's office. Uh, while he's in there, Peter is fishing a microphone and earpiece out of his pockets to, like, connect to the wall so he can listen to this whole conversation. Right away, Peter is hearing the detective speak very bluntly about his mother's murder. The detective tells Elliot that Liz Blake saw the killer, and then Peter looks across at her, so he's he's... Now, learning who these other people around him are, he sees this woman in front of him. She was the witness to the killer. We get maybe our first of many split diopter shots to see the detective and doctor in clear focus behind Peter to match with the clarity of the audio he's hearing. The detective asks the doctor why Kate came to speak with him, and he needlessly divulges that she was having marital troubles before clamming up remembering that he isn't supposed to share this kind of information about a patient. Peter doesn't seem surprised to hear this, though. The detective gets angry about being locked out, and he says, We got a brutally murdered woman here who passed the point of being embarrassed by anything you might tell me. But he knows the limits of his power as an interrogator, and will learn that he likes to test people on whether they know their own rights or not, as a way of making his job easier. The doctor rolls over and gives the detective what he wants. He says, Kate was not suicidal, because the cop assumes that she must have been asking to be slashed to death in this elevator. There's no way that she just wanted to have sex with someone. He tells the doctor basically everything that happened that day, and Peter has to listen to this shit. He asks if Kate might have bumped into a weirdo at Dr. Elliot's office. 
Coincidentally, in the shot of Kate at his office for the first time, she does cross paths with a very tall woman in sunglasses at the door, leaving as she enters. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't really play a part later. The doctor's response to this is... The term we use, Detective Marino, is not weirdo, but a person suffering from emotional dysfunction and a problem of maladaption. And they never come to my office. So I guess he doesn't handle patients that he deems especially disturbed? Which is why he dumped Bobby as a client. I don't know about that. I don't, it didn't really make sense to me when he said that line. I'm like, what do you mean they never come to your office? Like, like I can handle disturbed people, but not insane people. I just send them away. Yeah, I just, it doesn't make any sense to me though, because like, at what point did you decide that? And then yeah. you just don't let them come back to your office? Yeah. And what, what is your standard for acceptably in need of psychiatric advice? And how is he a practicing therapist? Yeah. That's my big question over all of this is how is he licensed to operate? It seems weird. The detective asks point blank if he's protecting a patient and he says no. The detective agrees to get a warrant for Elliot's appointment book when he won't hand it over. And back at his office, Elliot leaves messages for Bobby saying that he's desperate to speak with her. The detective interrogates Liz Blake, who seems to be pretending she isn't a, a prostitute momentarily. Then he pulls out her official file and starts reading all the charges that she's faced and she lights up a cigarette because the the innocence has evaporated he wants to know who the john was and she tells him to fuck off he tells her that she's basically their only suspect and this is when she finally admits that she is a prostitute but she doesn't have a lot of information about the guy he tells her it would be smart to get this john to the police station to verify that he saw what she says because otherwise she doesn't have any defense and anyone to vouch for what she's saying he tells her not to think about leaving town because he'll be keeping an eye on her. She doesn't have any luck reaching her Candler. customer through. Yeah, she, she her, her customer service department. Yeah, <laughs> she is the customer service yeah. department. She phones them up and try, she tries to pretend like, oh yeah, no, we just had a good time. I just wanted to see if you had a number for him that I could reach him at. And they're like, no, he actually called back and said he witnessed a murder and that he'd rather not we give your information out. Peter heads to the doctor's office and starts timing people as they exit from leaving the door to when they reach the gate at the edge of the porch. Uh, we get another split diopter shot here of the stopwatch and the exiting patients. He underlines the fastest time on the notepad. At home, Peter draws up a schematic making use of a camera and the entrance to the doctor's office, and we cut to a woman on the sidewalk looking up at the second story windows of a building right as they're coming on. Peter chains up a bike outside the doctor's office, and arranges a camera inside the back of the bike. Like there's a box on the back of the bike with the camera hidden inside of it and a little lens hole where it can take pictures through. Totally inconspicuous. Yes. Uh, he frames, the, it's like the giant hat from The Simpsons. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you can't tell there's a camera in there. He frames the porch of the office and starts the camera with a timer taking a picture every four seconds. We get Another split diopter shot of the lens of this hidden camera box on the right, and he's walking away on the left. And then we get a very long split screen take of two scenes, something De Palma is known for, specifically with a long split screen scene in Phantom of the Paradise, which was in turn a reference to a long single take from Orson Welles' Touch of Evil. In this split screen, we have Dr. Elliot on the right. Or is he on the left? No, Dr. Elliot is on the left, I think. Yes. And... Nancy is on the right. Liz, sorry, the actress is Nancy. Someone is watching her through the windows to her apartment. Dr. Elliot is listening to a voicemail from Bobby again and about her plans to kill Liz. 
and on the other side liz is calling her stockbroker to order the stock that that john recommended before they stumbled upon a murdered person yeah liz gets a second call from her boss and asks for a pay advance to cover the cost of this stock purchase pretending that it's for her mother's surgery or something on the other side dr elliot's voicemail ends and he watches an episode of phil donahue interviewing a transsexual woman it is a real episode that they were using archival footage from when liz finishes her calls she tunes into the same interview and they're watching them in sync with each other the woman being interviewed explains that it's not uncommon for male to female transsexuals to have very macho and masculine jobs before transitioning i did like the joke at the end though where donahue tries to say uh, now b- before this uh, you you did have heterosexual relationships and then she says oh more than that i've always oh. been a devout heterosexual <laughs> <laughs> Liz heads to the hotel to meet her new customer, a man from Cleveland who is ecstatic to learn that she is his escort. Later that night in binocular POV, we see her leaving the hotel when she notices her stalker and quickly recognizes that she's being followed. She bribes her cab driver to race and lose their tail with an extra bonus payment for blowing red lights. And the cabbie seems really excited to blow the red light, but he still doesn't lose the car that's following them. When Liz rises in the backseat from this dramatic turn, she does a cartoony jaw adjustment that really bothered me. Like, she's like, oh, man. It was yeah. One, yeah, yeah, yeah. One, 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 like, shot short of going, audi, 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 audi. Yeah. It was like, might as well have been a, a pigeon triple take. Um, <laughs> well, this isn't a Bond film. Yeah. Um, she asks the cab driver to let her out. As she's exiting the car, they make a date for later without exchanging any information yeah, that's the best part she's just like i'll call you yeah. <laughs> bye um what's your number 1-800-TAXI right when he sees the stalker following her down the sidewalk though he intentionally opens the cab to try and knock her over and successfully does uh, liz comes face to face with the killer just outside the subway and races underground in her efforts to escape this pursuer she accidentally crowds a group of young african-american men who are curious what she's doing so far down the platform well i think more so she was seeking shelter with by trying to stand close to them. yeah maybe yeah she definitely was but she was standing a little too close to them yeah too close for their, for their comfort. comfort they're suddenly threatening to kill and rape her for encroaching on their territory and she scrambles for the train to tell a police officer about the gang following her but he does not believe a word and he like leans out of the subway and looks at just a bunch of pillars where you can't even see the people yeah. so see there's nothing out there and it's like you you don't you didn't notice the thing in the way also the train doors just open people got on the train yeah <laughs> uh but they exchange angry glances for the whole duration of this ride and then as soon as he steps off the train she inexplicably doesn't follow him and the men chasing her immediately return she moves from subway car to subway car to get away from them until she crashes headlong into the killer who takes a straight razor and swings it down at her until suddenly peter is there with a with a homemade mace which he sprays in the face of the killer and then the killer runs screaming out of the subway i I like that he makes this homemade mace only in the sense that like pretty much any aerosol can be it hairspray or spray paint anything it would all cause 10 seconds of blindness anything is gonna blind your assailant yeah back at liz's apartment he explains that he followed the killer from dr elliot's office peter suggests breaking into the office to find his appointment book and whoever his last appointment of the day was because he didn't see anyone else come out of the office after this person liz argues to let the police handle it even though they've done nothing but call her a liar murderer whore this whole time Uh, liz tells marino everything that happened the next day 
and as usual he suggests that she's just bsing him she tells marino that the killer is for sure one of elliot's clients and he tells her well i can't get a warrant for that appointment book so you do it because evidence collected illegally is for some reason more admissible if a civilian steals it yeah <laughs> it's still yeah, a definitely not chain true. of evidence it's not you can't That's use this yeah. elliot meets up with dr levy this is bobby's new psychiatrist and who seems very confused or yeah. suspicious about i mean he whole... he seems to catch on pretty quick what's happening yeah but he does at first be like what oh okay this is who i'm talking to but elliot warns uh levy that he should not approve bobby's sex change operation elliot tells levy that his razor was stolen and that bobby threatened him and is likely the killer that levy should have heard about on the news mm-hmm. because that was a killing that happened with a with a straight razor meanwhile lovely is wondering if i should allow this man yeah to continue to operate as a licensed doctor <laughs> yeah uh levy keeps trying to get elliot to come to the police station with him so that yeah. they can discuss it with the police but uh, elliot insists that he has to leave because he really has some stuff he's got to do at his office peter watches all the footage of patients leaving elliot's office to find a picture of the killer to try and identify this person but they never really find one. They they pause on something, but they can't see a face. Yeah, and and this is where I was starting to piece it all together. Yeah, because I had not seen this movie, and I was just like, wait a minute, how is Bobby leaving his office if he has an appointment with Bobby, but isn't able to get Bobby on the phone? Yeah, and I was like, oh god, here <laughs> we go. Uh, Liz books a late night appointment with Doctor Elliot. Apparently, he just had some time in his schedule that was open, and that worked out. She tells him about a nightmare she's been having where a large man says he needs her help, and she believes him, but then he takes out a straight razor and tells her what he's going to do and how much she's going to like it, and then the dream guy basically just rapes her. Uh, She pauses, embarrassed for a moment, at the window, looking across the street at Peter with binoculars across the way, and she talks about how all the dirty stuff she does as a hooker and that sometimes she does things for free for mature doctorly types. What sort of men turn you on? A mature doctorly type. And he gives her the same speech that he gave to Kate, that he's married and he wouldn't have sex even though he's he is attracted to her. He admits that he's sexually attracted to her. He wouldn't act on it because he cares too much about his marriage. And then she starts undressing. She asks if she can take her coat off, and when she does, she's not wearing much underneath, and asks if she can take the rest off because she's in need of sexual assistance. She says she's going to go powder her nose, and she'll be right back, and she wants to find his clothes on the floor with hers. She closes the door and finds his appointment book and tears out the contact info for the last appointment of the day. Doesn't notice that it's her name. No, that would be funny, though. Um, (laughs) The previous day. I'm the killer. (laughs) Oh, my God. Now I remember. Now that's a twist. And uh, she it's returns three. <laughs> yeah, uh, she returns to his office with the contact card tucked into her underwear, and the lights are off in the room where Elliot was. But with occasional lightning strikes, we can see the killer hiding behind her in the office. Peter is noticing this too from across the street and moves in closer to investigate when he's suddenly attacked from behind. Even as we see the killer moving around in Elliot's office, Liz can't find Elliot in the dark and assumes he's being shy again until she hears Peter banging frantically at the window, telling her to look behind her. Elliot, as Bobby now, swings the razor blade all the way to Liz's hand before the woman outside with Peter can get a shot off, which hits Elliot, I can't tell where, like the neck? 
Uh, where where is shoulder? It's not life threatening. Yeah, apparently. Uh, but she knocks him to the ground with this gunshot. But he successfully sliced open Liz's hand with the razor blade. And we cut to an exposition fest at yeah. the police station. Oh my goodness! I felt like it was the end of a murder she wrote. Episode. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we learn that half of the tall blonde women stalking Liz for this entire movie have been Detective Luce, who Marino instructed to keep an eye on her so she wouldn't leave town. For example, the woman who gets knocked to the ground by the cab driver was not the killer. That was this oh, detective. Really? Yeah. Um, I don't know how you can tell which who is who in which scene. The well, only reason you know there is because she gets knocked to the ground as uh, Liz is running away, and then when she gets to the tr- the subway station, the killer is already in there. Yeah, ahead of her. But but also that this pursuer had a driver, right? And it was not a, like a taxi. I was like, I was like, wait, the killer has an accomplice who's got a a, a driver who drives them around to, yeah. to murders. And also, when we get that long split screen scene where there's the woman is watching her apartment while she's talking yes. to her stockbroker, the woman watching the apartment is the detective, not the killer. Okay. Because obviously the split screens are happening at the same time. Right. And right. They otherwise were in the killer just, would be on the other side. They're to throw you off. So yeah. You didn't realize that it could possibly be the same person. Because you would think every time I see someone in a trench coat with a blonde wig and sunglasses, I know that's the killer. And it's like, nope. It just so happens that that's how another person dresses in this movie. Um, and, it, and it turns out Marino is actually like a really good guy. He's like, this is one of our best police persons like yeah he, like he's he's like very like trying to not talk down to her right and he's and, also he explains like every time she thought she was in danger that she was actually being very closely guarded and that everything would have been okay and i guess that's proven by what happened here at the office she asks now what's going to happen we also get a, a weird uh, a moment with dr levy who i'm not even sure why he's here in the police station but he explains to all of them that Bobby and Elliot were essentially split personalities of a transsexual person and that the point of the sex change was to be to to resolve the conflict within this person. Yeah. Um, but that maybe one of the personalities wanted the change more than the other one did. Or maybe Dr. Elliot thought that it would be killing him to become Bobby completely. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know. For some reason, he's dead set against this transition from happening. So I think... This is one of my biggest gripes about the movie. And I realize that it's 1980 and we probably didn't progress very far in terms of LGBT plus, you know, terminology and general public understanding. Even psychiatrists were not, you know, as enlightened as we potentially are today. But it bothers me that they're putting all this emphasis on this concept of Elliot being uh, like a transsexual when really it seems like a split personality well, yeah it's obviously like a, a dissociative identity disorder right like it's a multiple personality situation and it has nothing to do with being a transsexual like it's not it's not the one personality I agree. is a transsexual it's just he has two personalities and one of them isn't his assigned gender right yeah it, it is uh it is weird that they're that they're conflating those two yeah, and things. like I said, I mean, it's 1980. We probably weren't super enlightened on the differences between these things at right. the time. But it, I think they should have emphasized the multiple personalities and not this concept of transgender. But they they do go a long way to try and explain on a clinical level what transsexuals are. Yeah, uh, but that's over not the what he is. Film. Yeah, it, it doesn't relate to the plot necessarily. But 
I think that was in a way their their defensive way of being like, well, look, we're not trying to say like all transsexuals are like this. Look, there's one on TV with Phil Donahue, and that one seems completely normal. Yeah. But this now is we're a story about one. Yeah, and now we're going to go into graphic detail about how yeah how one goes through the uh, reassignment surgery in the interview with the person with Phil Donahue that they said that they had heterosexual relationships because that is not the case in terms of this killer. This killer hates himself for that, in fact, that same feeling. Right. Well, I think that guest on Phil Donahue was in two marriages that were like out of obligation to someone of the opposite gender before their transition. And so that's why when Phil Donahue says, oh, you were, you had two heterosexual relationships before you transitioned. And then the person said, well, I always had heterosexual relationships. The, but now I'm actually in a relationship with the gender that I'm attracted to, yeah. which was not the case before my transition. Okay. I, I guess, I don't know if I'm just reading it differently, but I just it just seemed weird to me because the way I read it, it's the opposite of what they're saying was happening here because he was mad at himself for being attracted to an, to an opposite or rather same sex gender, depending on which personality you're looking at. Right. Yeah. But when Liz asks what's going to happen to Elliot, everyone is like silent in the room and there's like an awkward moment where nobody wants to answer. I thought they were going to say he escaped. Right? I, oh. I, I, I was like, did he get away? That's exactly what I thought too. I, I was like, why is everyone so like upset? I thought it was more like he was going to die or that he already died. Um, but no, for no reason, they're just not saying, oh, he's at Bellevue. But in fact, there was no real resolution to yeah. that. <laughs> um, we cut to Peter and Liz splitting a meal at a restaurant called the Windows to the World, which was actually in one of the Twin Towers, which is another duplication uh, to go with the film's theme. She's explaining to Peter what transsexuals are and in very graphic detail how sex change operations work to the disgust of an older woman in the background, which is <laughs> a really fun moment where you just see this lady like, why are you talking about chopping a penis in half? This is... This is uncomfortable. Peter says that it's giving him an idea for a science experiment. And he says, I mean, instead of building a computer, I could build a woman out of me. He's like, okay, I get it. Uh, he's excited about it. It sounds like Elliot has been committed to Bellevue and assuming they can help him with whatever issues he's trying to work through, then he will officially face charges for the crimes that he committed, at which point she would be brought in as a witness. Right. But for me... Anything after the conversation of what's going to happen to Elliot is forfeit because apparently she can have visions of other people doing other things. What do you mean? Well, we'll get to it right now. Okay. Liz admits that she won't feel safe without Peter around and he invites her to stay at their home because his stepfather has gone on business. So we cut to the lone nurse at an asylum with, with a thousand patients and very bizarre lighting. There's just sort of <laughs> lights propped up all over the place, it's just very, blue lights. It's very Gilliam-esque. Yeah. Yes. I, there was also some Dutch angles happening in this scene that yeah. I think that uh, emphasized the bizarreness of it all. She uh, she helps tuck Elliot in for the night when he suddenly sits up and chokes her to death. There's no other doctors here to stop it, and all the patients just giggle as they watch it happen. Uh, and then Elliot strips the nurse and dresses in her uniform and shoes. We cut to a POV outside Peter's home as peter works on a computer in his room and liz begins undressing for a shower the person in the pov breaks a window to enter the house and from inside the bathroom we see bobby brought the lights from the asylum to <laughs> set up in the yard and point them into the house 
she slowly opens the door to the bathroom, but Liz hears the slippers sneaking into the room. And she turns off the water and slowly opens the shower stall when she sees the legs and the slippers of the killer just around the door to the bathroom. She reaches around for something to use as a weapon to defend herself, but none of it helps very much. And she keeps her eyes on the toes of these slippers while she's checking the medicine cabinet for another straight razor. But we get another angle from outside the room and see that the slippers are empty and the killer is actually right behind her. She quickly slashes her neck open with the razor. And then we get a shot of Liz waking up startled in the same bed that Kate Miller woke up in to start the film. And Peter arrives to comfort her when she freaks out and they hug and she cries. Yeah. So if she can, so I'm assuming everything that happened in the hospital was a dream. Right. Yes. And so it's just like, well, well then what's real? Like if she's dreaming this, if she can dream like about other people doing other things, like I start to quit that. I hate endings like this because then it causes me to question things that happen. I don't no, I don't in this case at all. It's just the weird looking blue lit funky hospital scene. That's a dream. I, and, and her in the shower. That's a dream. Yeah. I, I'm confused. What part of it bothers you? Well, because why wouldn't the scene at the restaurant be a dream? Because it wasn't weird. Yeah, what would be what's what was dreamlike about that scene? Nothing, but there was nothing dreamlike about her in the shower either. Well, there was yes, there was. It, yeah, the, it was a the, nightmare. The, she was getting attacked by the person. That, no, but but, but, but okay. The, so you you agree that the asylum was dreamlike? Yes. The asylum lighting is outside her window in the shower scene. So I first like that was an indication to me that I'm just like okay, that's weird. That's got like the asylum lighting outside her window. That's bizarre. But nothing inside the apartment was like that. No. Right, but she's watching a killer sneak up on her. That's that's nightmarish, isn't it? Yes, but she, I don't know. It just it just it just really bothers me. I, I can't. It I seems can't, like so, you're you're mad that the dream wasn't entirely in her POV. Correct. Okay. I I don't think that dreams have to be. Do you in only your POV. dream in your in your own POV? Um, I wouldn't know if I wasn't. How? Well, <laughs> <laughs> if I'm seeing it. Have you ever seen someone sneak up on yourself where you weren't expecting it? No. Okay. Well, then the answer is yes, I dream in POV exclusively. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see that that's a, that would be a legitimate complaint for a nightmare to be shot that way, but I don't think it breaks any sort of film rules about nightmare scenes. There's plenty of nightmare scenes where stuff is happening that's right. not a POV shot. And I don't know that you don't know that it's a POV shot of her in the hospital because like in a nightmare you put yourself in really weird places seeing things that you wouldn't normally see. We also don't know like maybe this is a sixth sense situation and she that wasn't a dream and she got her neck slashed and she went to the hospital and recovered for months and she and was waking up in the bed was a dream. Waking up remembering it. What? No, oh, no. <laughs> and he's like, "No, no, no, you're safe now. Remember we shot him again." back in the hospital i mean shot him again he he escaped but he's he he was in the hospital the director here was brian de palma he is the director of body double untouchables scarface mission impossible phantom of the paradise carry blowout the sequel to mission impossible mission to mars bonfire of the vanities uh, and he also directed home movies god, earlier this I year. I forgot that he directed Mission to Mars. I did too until I found it on his IMDb page. Oh my god, that that is such a weird movie. It is. I mean, it's just it was his attempt at a Kubrick thing, and it doesn't really work. No, it doesn't work. I, at the all. one thing I did like was the whole like accidental terraformation of the planet. Oh, that's Red Planet. 
Oh, is that Red Planet? That's Red okay, Planet. Okay, then I hate Mission to Mars. Yeah, Mission to Mars is terrible. Is Mission to Mars the one where they go underground and talk to the aliens? Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's stupid. The, and, the, and, and it's the <laughs> one they get a, they get around having to show a futuristic car by saying, "I can't believe you still drive this internal combustion car." <laughs> and I, ah. At that point, I just wanted to take a gun yeah. to my head. <laughs> it's like a it was like a product placement car from that year. It's like I can't believe you're still driving around this 1997 Toyota Maverick. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't that egregious, no. but it was still like just really frustrating for this movie about spaceships. Yeah. Um, Michael Caine was Dr. Robert Elliott. He was Alfie in Alfie. He's also Alfie in the Nolan Batman trilogy, if you know him well enough. <laughs> uh, most people call him Alfred. He's in two movies that have footage reused in MacGyver episodes. Funeral in Berlin which was reused for the Coffin Jetski opening gambit, mm. and The Italian Job, which uh, was reused for a bunch of uh, season one, episode three, Thief of Budapest. Oh, yeah. We all know this. Uh, he plays the captain in Beyond the Poseidon Adventure. We just had him in The Island. He was fantastic. He's Hoagie in Jaws 4, Scrooge in The Muppet Christmas Carol. Angie Dickinson was Kate Miller here. She won a Golden Globe for her performance as Feathers in Rio Bravo. She was Wilma McClatchy in Big Bad Mama and Big Bad Mama 2, and she won a Saturn Award for her performance here. At the time of filming, she was married to Burt Bacharach. Nancy Allen was Liz Blake. She's Ann Lewis in the RoboCop movies, all That's three right. of them. There's only three. I think there's more. But she's only in three, I think. Well, I mean, if you count the, the newer one, there's more. Right, but I don't. <laughs> uh, she's also in Carrie, Home Movies, This, and Blowout for her husband at the time, director Brian De Palma. And her first film appearance was in The Last Detail, oh. which is a fun movie. Yeah, Keith Gordon is Peter Miller. He was Doug in Jaws 2, uh, not Jaws 4. Uh, he was Arnie Cunningham in Christine. He's Jason Mellon in Back to School. And he has since moved behind the camera as a prolific director of high-quality television, including House, The Killing, Dexter, Leftovers, Better Call Saul, a bunch of the new Fargo series, and he just recently worked on a show called Dispatches from Elsewhere that looks pretty cool. Have mm. you seen any promos no, for that? Looks good. Dennis Franz was Detective Marino. We'll have him again later this year as Spike in Popeye. He worked with De Palma again for Blowout next year and an uncredited voice in Scarface and also Body Double. He's best known for his cop roles in this and Hill Street Blues, NYPD Blue, mm -hmm. uh, Die Hard 2, He's basically the non-fatherly version of Reginald Val Johnson in everything, yeah. including the Die Hard performance. I, I also love that uh, in Die Hard 2, I can't, remember, I can't remember if he says it's his brother or his cousin, but it's played by Robert Costanzo. Oh, really? And I was just like, oh my God, if anyone was going to be Dennis Franz's like, <laughs> relation, it's going to be Robert Costanzo. Yeah, that works. David Margulies was Dr. Levy. We had him earlier this year as a cop in Hide in Plain Sight when uh, James Caan was trying to file a missing persons report for his kids. And he's probably best known as the mayor of New York City and prospective governor of New York State in Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters 2. Ken Baker played Warren Lockman. Kenny Baker. <laughs> when I saw the name in the opening credits, I expected him to be much shorter. <laughs> but he's Ken Baker, not Kenny Baker. So he's not the same person who plays R2-D2. Susanna Clem is Betty Luce. She played the killer in most of the film except for the last scene in Dr. Elliot's office. Brandon Maggart was Cleveland Sam. He'll be back as Harry Stadling in Christmas Evil later this year. William Finley was Bobby, the voice on the phone. That's uh, one of the scientists from Simon, uh, the Phantom. And William Finley will be back for Funhouse next year. 
Erica Katz plays Girl in Elevator. That's the girl who gives Kate Miller the stink eye when she's mm-hmm. like, I know that you screwed a guy. <laughs> she plays. Smell it. What? <laughs> I could smell the gonorrhea. Uh, <laughs> she plays Jan Montelli in Amityville 2. Uh, she's Cynthia's friend in Big. And lately she has appeared regularly as a parenting expert on Fox and Friends. Yeah, so can we talk about the fact that they didn't have Michael Caine do the voice and body double for the killer? Like, why would you not? Because he has a very distinctive voice and a very distinctive shape. Then he needs to alter that mm-hmm. in those scenes. He needs to he needs to put on a feminine voice and he needs to, you know, do some fancy makeup. I, I think it's fine. I think it's just a cheat. And I think it's it was on purpose that it was just like, oh, well, you can't say that you knew for a fact that it wasn't him. So it's fine for me to use other people for this character up until I reveal who it is. Yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of things that I like about this movie. I I remembered liking it a lot. Yeah. So we saw it a, a long time ago. I mean, it's probably been 10 years since we've seen it last and i remember really liking it but i think that this is the kind of movie that y- you like it more the first time you've seen it than yeah. the second time you well, see it well when you when you know what's coming you're yeah. less impressed with the turn yes for sure uh well speaking as a first timer uh i still wasn't impressed <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think i think um a lot of the time de palma's stuff is it feels sloppy to me um i i think that he's trying to make it feel raw and he's trying to make it feel like erratic a lot of the time, but sometimes it just comes off as like, you know, they were sitting in the editing room and they were like, that's fine. And they just moved on to the next scene. And it was like, well, that could use some polishing. I don't know. There's, there's just bits and pieces that jump out where I'm like, it just, it just feels like the edit is a little weird. The yeah. There's pacing issues, I think. Sure. Up or down, Jess? I'm still actually going to give it an up. I think it's something people should see. Even if it's not something people should re-see. <laughs> yeah. I think that's fair. I, I'll give it an up too, and I'll say if you haven't seen it, see it. And if you've seen it, don't see it. Uh, I'm going to give it a down. I do applaud that it tried, maybe tried to bring some stuff about uh, transgender and tried to bring some of that into the limelight. But I feel it did it in the same way that Cruzen tried to do it. <laughs> Which is ill-informed yeah yeah and i'll give you that I, and i i agree though with your criticism that this this was a uh dissociated identity disorder mm-hmm. movie masquerading as a transsexual killer movie and it, it it shouldn't have used it as just window dressing it should yeah. have been if you're going to make a movie about transsexuals make it a, have anything to do with the person's transsexuality well and they didn't really dive into either or any of that like it was just sort of this bit that was slapped on the end and so i feel like if that's really what you want to explore then explore it but they didn't they just sort of said yep that's what it is yeah do we know where this is going on our lists yet um i'm actually going to put this just below cruising and just above window so it passes the window threshold and that's so all of the uh all the offensive sexuality movies are in a row there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right where they belong. Uh, so that puts it at number uh, 52. Okay. Uh, Jess, what do you got? All right. I'm going to put it above Urban Cowboy and below Saturn 3. Okay. So it's it's eh, pretty smack dab in the middle there. Um, I'm actually putting it pretty high on my list. Um, for me, it's going just above Humanoids from the Deep. 
and just below Caligula. Because I actually enjoy the performances, but I I do feel like uh, Nancy Ellen is being very corny the whole time. I, I, yeah. But I can't tell if it's on purpose or not. I can't tell if she's kind of a joke. Because just her delivery of some of the lines like, Because I'm a hooker. And I've done most of the bad things you just read about. I like to turn men on. I must do a pretty good job because they pay me a lot. And it just feels like she's playing a character from a 30s movie. But that's also in the scene when she's trying to distract him. And right, so she's but like she's not lying. Though. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's just weird that she's like, like, oh, I'm going to pretend I'm a prostitute. And it's like, you are a prostitute. Just say it's shit. Like acting is acting like you're not acting. <laughs> Can I revise my placement? Yes. I just want to bump it up just a little bit. Not much, like a few slots, because I realized that... I had fame and Nijinsky above it, which is just not accurate. No. <laughs> so it's going to go above Nijinsky and below, uh, what is that Noah's Ark one? The last flight of Noah's Ark? Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's fair. I, I think for me, had this movie focused on uh, Liz Blake's character a little earlier on, because we're following this woman around and I get it. We're, we're, we're getting like an idea of her life, but her life doesn't play much into why she's been killed. Right. Um, and like if, if, if her bad marriage or her son's computer or, or something of, of that nature was playing in to her, it seems like the only reason she was killed was because she tried to come on to Dr. Elliot. To yeah. me, that's the only reason that she was killed. Had she not done that? Had she not asked to sleep with him? And he made that little aside to his mirror to like yeah. check with himself. Like, yeah, it's time to kill her. Um, He's just like, are you hard? I'm hard. It's yeah. like we're the same person. Right. Got uh, it. I, I feel that that's the, the only real thing that happened. And that makes all the other scenes of her before that really not as important. Well, that's where you get into the Hitchcock comparisons, obviously, with Janet Lee. Right. Like, you think you're following one person and then they're killed by this cross-dressing character. Right. Because both of the films think, oh, cross-dressing is a sign of psychopathy. And it's like, no, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't have to do that. You didn't have to do it again. Uh, And then this time in the story of the the boy whose mom died, he's not like trying to take her place. He's trying to avenge her. Mm -hmm. So suddenly the the mom and the son are the good guys instead of being the crazy people like in Psycho. But And they do a similar thing in Death Proof where you you think that it's a movie about this group of people and then they're all dead suddenly like at the end of the first act and you're like oh i guess we'll start over with someone else now Mm -hmm. it's like you're watching two different movies really but i guess that's part of the whole duality of the whole movie there everything's being split up into two parts i think that's everything for this one if you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us we are vintage video pod on twitter facebook instagram and letterboxd Whereas I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show. And if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can also support the show through Patreon.com slash VintageVideoPodcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Middle Age Crazy, which IMDb describes like so. A married man is turning 40, and that's when midlife crisis hits him. He becomes obsessed with young women and fast cars. We leave you now with a trailer for Middle-Aged Crazy. The Middle-Aged Crazy epidemic is spreading. Look for these warning signs. 
realizing that one beautiful woman is about three less than you want. Telling your mirror what you do for a living. I build taco stands. Impulsively trading your old car for a $40,000 Porsche. Bruce Stern and Margaret in Middle Age Crazy, a funny movie that's very catching. Rated R.